Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. So have I. How fitting, then, that we will continue with episode two of A Lifetime in NASCAR, a podcast from co-host Ben White, that's Ben, Aaron Burns, that's me, highlighting NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from both of us. We're going to talk about some upcoming topics like playoffs, silly season, rules changes, talking about all kinds of things going on in NASCAR's history, as well as the present talking some famous races, moments, tracks, cars, you name it. We're going to be discussing it in this episode, which is episode two. To kick things off, Ben, I just kind of touched on Silly Season there. Um, It's one of the most unique names for any off-season in professional sports how did it get its name, and, and what do you remember about this? Well, to be honest with you, Aaron, I think the way it got its name was because we would hear rumors, and this goes back even before I got into to NASCAR in 1983. But really, we would, you know, it, it went back even further than that, where people would say in the garage, "Hey, this driver's going to go with that team." And they're like, "What? No, there's no way that's going to ever happen." A lot of times, it would happen. Or if a driver would say, "Absolutely not, man. I'm not driving that car. I know you read that in the paper, but it's not happening." Well. <laughs> Four weeks later, this guy would would end up in the car. So the the way the silly season idea was, it was just like you'd hear some of the outlandish, craziest things that, uh, you know, you'd think, well, that's not going to happen. And then, and in a lot of cases, it would. And certain drivers would team up with certain uh, team owners. And you think, well, you know, they had their their clashes in the past, such as for – and this, they never teamed up, as, at least not till this point. But say a Richard Childress and a, and a, and a Kyle Busch, for instance. I mean, they've had their run-ins, uh, a physical altercation. I was going to say, I think want. Richard Childress is uh, – I think his fist may be teamed up with Kyle Busch. I, I think so, yeah. And it was one of those deals where he looked over at uh, one of his PR folks and said, here, hold my watch. And I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> so, so it's one of those deals where the, the, you'd think, well, this driver and that team owner is not going to get together, and they do they do that sometimes. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it came about. It's pretty crazy. And, you know, considering the fact that it's been around that long, it's changed so much in the way that they do things, too. Nowadays, particularly this offseason, I think, is probably unlike any other that we've had well, with the pandemic going on, there's been a lot of uncertainty in terms of uh, economic issues with race teams, probably more so in the springtime than, than in the fall and winter. But that's certainly probably impacted the way they've had to kind of go about this in terms of hiring drivers. Um, and there's also been several big changes this year. Bubba Wallace is leaving uh, Richard Petty Motorsports, where he was for the last several seasons to go 
to a new team owned by a fellow competitor, Denny Hamlin and NBA basketball legend, Michael Jordan. We're all very excited to see how that one goes. And then Eric Jones replaces him. Eric Jones coming, of course, from Joe Gibbs Racing, where he's being replaced by Christopher Bell. So a lot of different names moving around. In the 80s, Ben, it seemed like it was very common to see a top driver switch to whoever they thought was the fastest car. I know I've heard before there were times when Junior Johnson kind of courted Dale Earnhardt. It didn't end up happening for whatever reason. What are some of the most memorable moments from the 80s silly season that you recall? Well, one of the things that I remember, but first of all, back in those days, it was long before the internet was even thought of, I guess. And so in those days, you would, you would eagerly wait for the mailman to come and you'd find the, the latest uh, motorsports publication that you were reading and you'd thumb through there real quick to see, okay, what's what's going to happen. And and you didn't really hear a lot between November, which they would end the races then in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then you would, we would normally go to say Riverside, uh, California in mid to late January. And then we move into the Daytona 500, which for many years was the second race of the season. Now it's the season opener, but for, for many years, you didn't hear anything as far as which drivers were going where. And then of course, as time went on since the early, 90s when the internet did come in then you get more and more immediate information so what you're seeing now is almost before the ink dried so to speak you would get some kind of notice on email saying uh, of course today that that's happening but back in the 80s you really didn't hear a lot until you saw those trade publications come out in motorsports, or you might hear something on a local a sports broadcast. And there's rumor that say Bobby Allison's going to drive for Bud Moore or whatever, and it would right. come together. So that's, there's a big difference from what it used to be in, in the seventies and eighties to what it is now. And for me, just looking back on it to me, I would say the biggest silly season moves of the 1980s, There were two that kind of stood out above all others. First of all, the shock and awe that I'm sure everybody had when Richard Petty left his home team, Petty Enterprises, the team that his father, Lee, founded to drive for Mike Kerb and keep the same sponsor, keep the same manufacturer, keep the same car number. So it wasn't like a a visual change, but behind the scenes, that had to be pretty shocking when that went down in, uh, in 84. It really was, and and the entire motorsports community was at first. I remember when it came out, they're like, "Nah, that's someone's gotten some bad information. There's no way Richard Petty's leaving Petty Enterprises. That's nuts. That's crazy." But as the days went on, uh, it it became more and more of a a, a a big story, and it was just chemistry. I think they had they had run since 19 well when Lee Petty started it in 1949, right? As the patriarch to the to the team and you know of course lee uh, was the, a three-time champion richard petty a seven-time champion dale inman was there maurice petty drove 26 races for penny enterprises before he turned to building engines so it was a very close-knit family organization and you, you think to yourself man there's just no way that's going to happen but i think part of it was they had been together for so long and it was time i've even heard richard petty say that it was just time to make a change and and try going another direction and it was pretty shocking to hear that and of course as the days and weeks went on then we found out it was really true and 
and of course Mike Curb was his team owner. And of course, a lot of people think that Richard Petty won 200 races with Petty Enterprises. Not quite correct. Right. There were three or four races there that he did win with Mike Curb, and then then they ended it, you know, in in Atlanta in 1992 as far as his career. So, yeah, it was it was a shocking uh, headline for sure. And it's almost, it was depressing for me as a kid when I learned, I don't remember specifically when, but I was like, there's no way Richard Petty did not win his 200th race with Petty Enterprises. I mean, it was the number 43 SCP Pontiac that has to be Petty Enterprises, and it wasn't. So it's an interesting footnote to the story that for all the success that Richard Petty had, and it is worth mentioning, of course, he went back to Petty Enterprises. The gang all got back together in the late 1980s. This wasn't a very long arrangement, but... He won his 200th and final Winston Cup race at Daytona in 84 with Mike Curb as his team owner. So that was pretty interesting. And uh, just two years later, to me, was kind of an ultimate bombshell that in a lot of ways changed the way Silly Season became for the 1990s and on up to the 2000s. And and now in the 2020s, you had Daryl Waltrip, a three-time Cup Series champion, regarded by you'd probably say maybe most of the NASCAR media as at the time in 85, 86, the best driver in NASCAR. He was a defending champion leaving junior Johnson's team to go to Rick Hendrick's team, Hendrick Motorsports, this upstart group, which, you know, great. insanely enough, they didn't even win a race in 85. They won a couple out of the gate in 84 with Jeff Bodine. They didn't win a single race in 85, 86, Tim Richmond comes in and struggles early on with Harry Hyde. They got hot, and that Folger 25 car won a ton of races late in the year, and Tim just missed out in second place in points behind Dale Earnhardt and Daryl. And then here you are, Daryl, late in that season saying, you know what, I'm going to go. We're going to create what they called the dream team mm-hmm. with Waddell Wilson and, Je- and, and you know, this whole group of folks in this bright orange, you know, so bright and colorful and like any other paint skin that had ever been in NASCAR that would wake you up when you looked at it in this Tide car. And it, it, that had to just kind of turn NASCAR on its head for a little bit, because who would have expected that the champion would go to a team that had hardly proven anything to that point? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I do remember in, in that era where, you know, you're right, Daryl was on top of his game. And of course, everybody wanted to drive for Junior Johnson. And it did come close to a situation to where uh, Dale Earnhardt was they were on in the back burner talking about possibly Dale driving for junior and that didn't materialize, but in, in talking about Dale or excuse me, Daryl Waltrip. Yeah. It just seemed like, okay, you're leaving a really, really strong race team at juniors and you're going right. to an untested situation at Hendrick. But I think what went wrong in that deal was that there was so much talent among Daryl as a driver, Waddell Wilson as an engine builder. I think Jeff Hammond came on board as a crew chief. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we say it so many times in this business, the one word that comes to mind, no matter how much money you throw at a race car, at a race team, chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. And the chemistry just wasn't there for them. They just could not put together what they needed to. And because 
in the media, I remember the year when it came out that they were going to join forces like, oh, man, this is going to be another petty enterprises type thing. It has to because you've got all that talent under one roof. You've got uh, unlimited financial resources coming with uh, Procter & Gamble and Tide. I mean, it was like the dream, like you said, the dream team. And it just it actually, as Daryl has said many times, it turned out to be a nightmare. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's not anything that anyone expected. Like you said, no. Ben, I think, you know, as dominant as Dale Earnhardt was in 86, as dominant as Bill Elliott was in 85, I think everybody was expecting Daryl and this group to win 12, heck, 13, maybe 14 races, maybe win half the season because they had this package all together and they were driving Chevrolet Monte Carlos, which at the time was the car to have. Uh, it didn't have quite as much success as, as Bill's Thunderbird on the restrictor plate tracks. I should say the super speedways. They weren't restrictor plate tracks quite yet, but everybody was thinking that Daryl was going to come out and dominate. And in one of his books I read about 15 years ago, he mentioned what you said, that it wound up kind of being a nightmare that first year. They only won one race. It was at Martinsville in the fall. And it was under very interesting circumstances because Daryl was running third to Terry Labonte and Dale. Daryl kind of maybe nudged Terry a little bit, knocked him into Dale. Those guys got sideways and Daryl drove by and won. That was the only victory for the Waltrip and Wilson pairing. Now, Daryl had a lot of success at, at, at Hendrick Motorsports. He won his only Daytona 500 there with Jeff Hammond in 1989. But that was after Hendrick Motorsports kind of had to reshuffle its deck a little bit. They had lost Tim Richmond. They had gained Kenny Schrader for 88. And then it seemed like Daryl kind of got on solid footing for a couple of years before Another silly season, you know, bombshell from Daryl Waltrip. I feel like we could just talk about Daryl Waltrip and silly <laughs> season and have two hours worth of stuff. And okay. then it's it's like, all right, this guy won the Daytona 500. He almost won the championship in 89. He just finished behind Dale and Rusty. He didn't win in 90. He got hurt. He missed uh, half the season. And then he's going to start his own team. Like, how do you go from in four years, you went from I'm joining the dream team to, okay, now I'm going to do it myself. That, that that had to be a shock for, for you, Ben, covering it in the 1990 off season. Well, it was. And I think looking back on what did not develop at Hendrick Motorsports in the 17 tied car with all that talent around, again, I think there was a lot of talent. I'm not going to call it ego. I'm going to call it talent in, mm-hmm. a, in that scenario. And so every driver, I shouldn't say every driver, many drivers reach a point in their career where they'll say, I know I can do it better. I know I can, I don't, I want to be the boss. I want to have my race team. I want to be able to call the shots. We've seen it happen with when Ricky Rudd started his team. We saw it with Daryl's team. We've saw it, we've seen it with, and of course, Alan Kowicki. And he was the only one that was truly successful as at being an, an owner driver because he won the, 1992 championship of course putting that together but so many drivers have wanted to to run their show because they don't want someone telling them okay you need to drive a certain way or you need to do this a certain way that's that's hard on a driver because his style is a certain way so that's at towards the end of a career many people have tried that daryl tried it and uh, there was Bill some Elliott. success for yeah, Bill Elliott, right? Mm-hmm. He, and Daryl had some success. One of the biggest wins I think he had was the 1992 Southern 500. Yep. And that was a Winston Million race that Davey was involved in too. And that's that's another in- interesting story <laughs> about how that came about. Yeah. But he did win that race in a few races, but not didn't set the world on fire. And I think if you were to ask Daryl today, and you might ask Ricky the same question, did 
was that a smart move to do that? And it's it's pretty difficult to be the driver and the team owner because you're wearing so many hats. It's so, so hard to, to make a successful situation. And again, Alan Kowicki was, was the one driver that pulled it off. Not too many people have. I think one of the problems for these guys who did it, and and I'll leave Alan out of this because he won the title in 92, but it, it's kind of the case with him because, remember, he turned down Junior Johnson advances as well. But with Ricky Rudd, Daryl Waltrip, and Bill Elliott, the three that, that really kind of come to mind for me, I think all three of those guys had raced in the late 70s, early 80s. In Bill and Ricky's cases, they were, they were kind of coming on the scene at that point. But when you look at the late 70s, early 80s, Richard Childress did, all, did his own thing. Mm-hmm. And Richard Childress became one of the most successful owners in NASCAR history. And at that time, when Daryl's making this decision, Richard Childress is running the Cup Series championship team. So Daryl's kind of thinking, and I'm guessing this, but it seems to me Daryl's probably approaching it from a perspective of, well, if RC can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And then Ricky Rudd, you know, replacing Daryl in the Tide-sponsored car for Hendrick, goes off and does the same thing a couple of years later. Bill Elliott does it in 95. The problem with these guys making this decision, to me, I agree with you in the sense that they still had the skill. They could all get it done. If you put Bill Elliott in Jeff Gordon's car, he'd have won 10 races, too. I I do believe that. Bill still absolutely could do it in the mid-1990s. But the problem with running those teams themselves also was that the mid-1990s, the early to mid-90s, was when you were getting into the era of engineering, of no longer were you just adjusting the era of the car by beating the spoiler back. Um, it, there was a lot of costs that were becoming a, an issue that you had to have to be competitive. And it put these guys behind the eight ball within a year or two, in particular, Daryl. I remember Daryl saying in his book, he said it on a podcast as well, that, you know, I just didn't think it was going to cost this much. And it kind of put them behind the eight ball and it made that challenge only more difficult because as you got into the mid nineties and the late nineties, all three of these drivers, the costs of being competitive uh, we're really outweighing the benefit of being able to call your own shots. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, as you were talking there, I remembered a story that I had a great conversation once with the late great Buddy Baker, and Buddy was one of those two that started his own race team after having success uh, mostly on the speedways, super speedways, with with several team owners. But I remember him telling me once he said he got a bill. He was sitting at his desk at this race team he had, and he opened the bill and. The number was shocking <laughs> as far as the engine parts that he, yeah. that he had ordered. And he was thinking, well, this has got to be a case of whatever this is, you know, crankshafts or or pistons or whatever. He's like, no, that's just for one set. <laughs> and he's like, oh, really? I mean, he's like, I couldn't believe, you know, the money that it was costing to build a competitive race engine and competitive race cars. And I mean, you just don't think about it if you're a driver that's put all your energy into turning left and, and working that special, again, chemistry with your crew chief and doing that side of the business because they're so consumed with winning races, then you, you not only have that hat on your head, but you've got the hat of team owner managing the sponsorships, managing the, the numbers, managing the money, the parts, everybody comes to you because you're the boss. And it's so much that you have to look at by trying to be a team owner like that. And, but buddy was 
he said I was floored. It took my breath away that this is the kind of money we were spending, and it wasn't for large amounts of parts. It's like just to get to next week, and and it's it was quite an education. He said for him, he had no idea it was going to cost. And you're right, because of the engineering aspects, because of the specialization of what was going on in the sport at the time, then you know you had to have this specialist and that specialist and this and that before you know it. A lot of people were under your roof requiring, you know, nice salaries on top of all the other. So, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of going, a lot of changes going on then. And we've talked all about the negatives of doing this. There always are some positives. Otherwise, we wouldn't have one of NASCAR's current top drivers trying this with Denny Hamlin. It remains to be seen how much involvement Denny's going to have in terms of running the day to day situation with uh, with 2311 racing with himself and Michael Jordan. But Denny obviously is very invested in this venture. He picked Bubba Wallace, a driver who he thinks very highly of. The two drove for Joe Gibbs Racing. Um, they kind of intersected a little bit. Bubba drove for for Gibbs a couple races in the Xfinity Series in 2014, but he drove full-time for Kyle Busch Motorsports and their Toyotas and, and ran some races against Denny. As a matter of fact, Bubba's first ever win um, in a major series race was at Martinsville in 2013, and I was there for that race. Um, and Denny was in that race. He was his teammate driving the 51 truck. So, you know, they have a history together. Um, they definitely had their run-ins. Bubba's, uh, Bubba's colorful way of describing Denny's aggression there at the end of the Daytona 500 in 2018. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people remember that. But, you know, these guys also have a history. They played golf together. They played basketball together. They do have a friendship. And more importantly than that, they have a mutual respect that takes anything, any frustration in the past out of play because Denny Hamlin wants to win at whatever he does. And being a team owner, he's going to have to be focused on some of these things while still competing for his first championship. And I think the best way he could do that was pick who he thought was the total package in terms of marketing and driving potential. And that's Bubba Wallace. So it's going to be really exciting to see how he does in that. Um, Both those guys are, are pretty good short track racers. And, you know, I think as, as, as the season goes on, I think you're going to see, the 23 Toyota run, run pretty darn well. I don't know that it's going to win right out of the gate because we're just not sure where they're going to be, but I think they've got a lot of the pieces in place that can help that team be very competitive. And that starts with the owner, Denny Hamlin. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. Um, as far as you mentioning Buddy Baker, Buddy Baker is a good driver to uh, transition into something I wanted to talk about and a place that, that's pretty special to me. That's our track of the week. And it is North Wilkesboro Speedway in the metropolis of North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Uh, mm-hmm. Ben, you've you've watched numerous races there. Uh, what are some of your favorite memories in North Wilkesboro? Well, I'll tell you what, Aaron, I've got one that I still laugh about. And this is, uh, well, I want to say probably early 90s. I mean, I had been covering races at Wilkesboro since 1983 from from where my local newspaper, Lex, the Lexington Dispatch, Lexington, North Carolina, in relation to Wilkesboro, not even an hour up the road. So I would always, always, always go to Wilkesboro. Mm-hmm. It's such a, such a great racetrack. I mean, all the time had some incredible races there. But the one thing I do remember the most, and I'm not sure if I can say this, I guess I can, but it, when as a, as a media member, you had a choice when you got there in the press box from local folks that you could either have a bag of green apples or you can have a little small pint of moonshine. You could have either one as a, as a media member. There's no way anybody chose the apples, right? (laughs) There's no way. No, there's not. I was going to say, I was going to say that at the end of the day, 
there was a lot of apples left over course, <laughs> you know, on the counter, but it was just, it was interesting. I guess it's the best way to put that. We weren't selling it, of course, but mm-hmm. I don't know the whole story behind why I was up there, but it was interesting because, and you know, talking about Wilkesboro, uh, that they were, that's exactly why the track was built because there were so many uh, bets going on between moonshiners in Wilkes County as to which car and which driver was the best. So a gentleman by the name of Enoch Staley, and he had a couple of partners. One guy was named Lawson Curry and two others, Jack Combs and Charlie Combs. They said, well, by gosh, we'll just see. And so they put together this half mile racetrack, which was originally dirt. And it started, uh, they built it in 1946. NASCAR ran a modified race there on May 18th, 1947. And then, of course, the first cup race uh, was, I believe, 19, oh, I'm sorry, the NASCAR race was May 17th, uh, or May 18th, I'm sorry, 1947. So um, it was one of those deals where the, these guys just had to find out exactly who was the very best. And that's how the race track got started. And they had many, many incredible wins there for so many drivers. And it was so sad to see it close in 1996. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned the Combs boys. Those guys were um, forerunners to Rodney Combs, who was a NASCAR competitor in the 1980s and early 1990s as well. And we would be remiss as to not give a huge shout out to the late, great Junior Johnson, who whether it be as a driver, but uh, most especially as a team owner, uh, his shop being right there in Wilkesboro him being the local boy, certainly the most dominant team owner uh, at, at North Wilkesboro. When you drove for Junior Johnson, as Cale Yarbrough and Darrell Waltrip have said, you, you just checked off the two Wilkesboro races as wins. Or, and if you didn't win at North Wilkesboro, you better have a really good reason <laughs> because Junior yeah. expected to win every time he went there. And throughout the 1970s and uh, 1980s, if the NASCAR Winston Cup Series schedule was a bingo board, North Wilkesboro was the free space for Junior Johnson's team. Yes, sir. And there was times I know Kale has said this and Daryl both, they would forego going to testing at other racetracks to test at Wilkesboro because that's what that was the track and you were required when you signed the dotted line, so to speak, to win at Wilkesboro, it was just like, well, there's no one else that's going to win. It's going to be Junior Johnson. But I want to correct something I said a minute ago, Aaron. Uh, at North Wilkesboro, the first cup race there was October 16th, 1949. The first modified race was May 18th, 1947. So got a little confused there. But still, that's where it all started as far as, you know, the, the short track racing there in the North Carolina, North Wilkesboro area, Wilkes County. And, uh, man, I tell you what, it was such a great racetrack to go to. It was so much fun. The first time I actually went there was I was probably about 13 or 14 years old, went there with a friend. And I remember Kelly Arborough was on the pole and Benny Parsons was, I believe, on the outside of the front row. And I just remember the guys just, you know, shaking hands and, good luck and all that. It was just, it was a great Sunday afternoon atmosphere every time you went there because there was so much respect for the track and the people around and, you know, all the Wilkes County folks, they would, they would come there twice a year to see all the cup races and just incredible stories there for sure. It's such a small town atmosphere there and it still is. So North Wilkesboro for me means a lot personally as well, because it's the first racetrack I ever visited. Um, in 1991 in September, 
I went to my first first uh, race weekend, the Tyson Holly Farms 400, when Harry Gant was going for his fourth win in a row. And um, don't have a lot of memories of the experience because I wasn't quite four years old. But you know, my mom and my dad took me and uh, you know, had a heck of a time. And I, you know, I wanted to go back. I remember watching the races. Um, you know, particularly the ones in, in 1996. And, and you know, it's it's worth mentioning that you talked about Enoch Staley you know, helping build the racetrack. And Ian McSaley was the only owner of North Wilkesboro for his entire life. There was never an Enoch Staley sales to someone else. Enoch Staley owned and operated that racetrack his whole life from the moment he broke ground on it. And, mm-hmm. and it was on the, the cup schedule kind of as a uh, agreement with, with big Bill France and Bill Jr. That as long as Enoch Staley is running that racetrack, it's not going off the schedule. But if something happens, all bets are off, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yep, that's, he, that's true. It's yeah, true, and he man. passed away and and kind of it kind of changed the scope. So I remember in 96 being very invested in seeing who's going to win. And you had Terry Labonte winning in the Ironman car in the spring and Jeff Gordon winning the race in the fall of 96. But uh, it, like you said, Ben, very, very sad to, to not see that racetrack uh, maintain its position on the schedule. But at the same time, it's been the case for a, a lot of venues, even a couple now. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I've said this many times, if I was to be fortunate enough to win, you know, $100 million in the lottery or whatever, one of the first things I would do is figure out how to rebuild the racetrack. And it would take a lot now because the the buildings uh, are pretty much dilapidated. There was a time that the track about 10 years ago had did not have the grass and things growing through it. And Kevin Harvick did a test there yep. uh, and said, the track don't do a thing to the track. The track is great. And, you know, there was some rumblings about hoping to get the track back and they did get it going again with some, some late model races, uh, there. Chase Elliott won one. Yeah. 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 That's right. And it just, you know, it's just, you know, it's just so sad that they weren't able to continue there, but you know, it's a grassroots racetrack and it was a, a cornerstone of NASCAR, a cornerstone of the sport. And, uh, those guys, I mean, every time you went to Wilkesboro, you know, you're going to get a great race. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the only track that, at least that I know of that a driver w- walked into victory lane and was unable to get his car into victory lane. And that was Bobby Allison, 1978, as he took the white flag, he was having trouble. I believe it was his left front wheel or spindle and ended up before he got to the checkered right out, maybe right after he got to the checkered flag, of course, he crashed into the wall and, and they couldn't get the car fixed enough to get it to victory lane. So Bobby just walked into victory lane and did the, the victory lane ceremony without the race car. And it was still sitting out on the front stretch. So that was, <laughs> was kind of neat. You yeah, know, as long as see. he got the trophy. Yeah, he got the trophy yeah, and he got the money, I guess. But uh, and that was for Bud Moore, by the way. He he mm. drove for Bud Moore for a few few seasons, seventy eight, seventy nine, and eighty, and uh, they had some success together. Yeah, I need to do some research on that. My friends at Darlington Raceway are, I think, they're going to have me there. They've got some new uh, some new cars coming into their museum. I'm going to give them a shout out, and uh, I think they want me to kind of write the history of of those those machines. And one of them. Uh, interestingly, you put it would be Bobby Allison's Bud Moore car. So, um, I did not know that about him walking into victory lane. Sometimes you, you say that, you know, in passing, but he literally did. Um, and a, a bit of a postscript to, to North Wilkesboro. I didn't go back to North Wilkesboro after it shut down. So the only time I went was in 1991. And honestly, for the longest time, you know, I wanted to go to the late model races there when Chase was racing in 2010, but, um, 
I, I was living in Alabama that just wasn't feasible and it wasn't around long enough. And, you know, I, I think, like you said, Kevin Harvick told him, you know, don't change a thing. And I think they took him extremely literally. Um, they took that very seriously, unfortunately, but um, a postscript to this almost exactly a year ago, um, I was at the speedway and um, Dale jr. He of you know, his iRacing knowledge and, and, and genius uh, has been huge for the online racing community, to put it mildly, as far as being an advocate for uh, making that in, incredibly entertaining and, and, and competitive for, for people across the world. So last year, Dale Jr. recognized that North Wilkesboro, a place where he raced late models in the 90s, um, was, as you said, been dilapidated. It, you know, it was run down. Grass was growing through the... Uh, the asphalt on the, the, the track surface, the, the buildings were, were, you know, beyond disrepair, but he wanted to find a way to make this place live forever. And the best way to do that was to get it scanned on iRacing. Everybody could race it. Now there's one big problem. The way iRacing does its laser scanning, it is very intensive on the surface. So it wouldn't work if there's a bunch of grass growing through it. So he talked to Marcus Smith, the boss at Speedway Motorsports, about getting some of his staff, uh, in particular the operations departments of Charlotte Motor Speedway and I believe Bristol Motor Speedway. And I was one of the fortunate few. Uh, I went just to kind of take pictures and document this event. Um, we went to North Wilkesboro and met there at either 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning one Tuesday last December, in December of 2019, it was really cold. It was like 35 degrees. It was raining. It was awful weather, but it was such a cool experience to go back to this racetrack. And for those of you who are listening, who've never been to North Wilkesboro, Ben and I talk about this track, you know, it's this old short track. It's in the South. It's got a ton of history. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of flat, but you're really going up and down a hill in the straight. So you may, maybe you're thinking in your mind, Oh, maybe it's kind of like Martinsville. Well, the first time I went to Martinsville, it did give me a little bit of vibes from North Wilkesboro, but to accurately put into words what this place is like, you are driving through a neighborhood. You're not, this isn't on the interstate getting off on, and you're at day, this massive Daytona or Charlotte Motor Speedway or Indianapolis and in Speedway, Indiana. This is, you are driving in a mountain town in North Carolina and you are I mean, honest to God, I thought it was like pulling into somebody's driveway, but I was following the direction. <laughs> That's true. All you see is a house and some grass. It's, I mean, you could you could pull in there and think that somebody's just kind of made a you know made a wrong turn and is making a U turn, but then you go down farther, and there's this little ticket building, mm -hmm. and then there's the Winston Cup Series sign that you can still see, and. You're not near North Wilkesboro. You're there. That's it. You are at the racetrack. That everybody, everybody who went to that race, if they had to pull in there, that is the entrance they took. And so it is. It is. It is. It is grassroots, literally. Although it wasn't quite literally after last year, uh, the folks at um, those operations departments spent a ton of time eliminating all the grass and weeds from the surface cleaning up that track um, and Dale Jr. and some of his buddies with uh, Junior Motorsports, as well as some other drivers as well. I think Chris Busher and several other guys were there. Uh, they got out the weed eaters. Dale Jr. and Marcus were kind of leading the charge, got out the weed eaters, and we That's went cool. around the racetrack for several laps, um, smoothing out this surface so iRacing could scan this. And it was a really neat experience for me to, to you know, to 
first of all, drive a, a car around the racetrack, but also to see these two people um, with such a passion for preserving such a historical, you know, landmark in NASCAR in North Wilkesboro and, um, and have lunch with them and just listening to Dale Jr. Talk and tell his stories of, of being there and how much this meant to him, uh, was, was always great. You know, as I'm sure you'll agree, uh, he's just one of the, the coolest people in the sport to be around. He's a treasure trove of stories. And, uh, you know, I think everybody listens when Dale Jr. Talks, whether he's telling a story or he's making a point, he thinks something should be done. And in that case, it was done. And I racing, uh, you can now, if you're a member of I racing, you can, you can compete at North Wilkesboro as a bunch of my friends do. I need to get my membership back up and I'll probably get on there too, mm, but it, well, it's really, it's really cool. It is. And you know, uh, uh, uh since you're such a Richard Petty fan, I was going to share this story with you. He shared this with me several years ago, back in the late sixties, as I believe is when this happened, he was leading the race back in those days, you could lead a, a race, you know, be you know, four or five laps ahead of the second oh, yeah. place guy. So he was just out on a Sunday cruise. And every time he would get towards the start finish line, there was these three guys in the end or in the uh, grandstand. And there was a little small hole in the wall, right? Close to where the, uh, the start finish line and the, 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 that area was. And so every so often he'd come off a of turn four and these two guys, apparently they'd had a little too much to drink, I guess. And they would stick the third guy's head out and on, on the track. And then when Richard got close, they'd pull him back in. <laughs> and this went on for, I don't know, 10 or 12 laps until the, the police officers and stuff came down there. But he said, he said, I would squint my eyes and I would look and sure enough, there was this guy. They're trying to put the guy through the fence. And then when I got close to him, they yank him back towards the grandstand and just funny things like that, that, you know, happened. I remember though, uh, Tom, the, the late, uh, Tom Higgins, who mm-hmm. worked for the Charlotte observer yep. told me one, a story about how there was a guy who was in the field. Junior Johnson was driving the race car then back in the mid sixties, 1963, four. And there was a guy in the field that had started the race and they determined that he was wanted by the Wilkes County Sheriff's Department. Oh, no. So, so yeah, so they found out this guy was in the field. So they figured out a way to black flag him and get him to come in. He came in and he, you know, basically made a run for it. And they caught him uh, somewhere outside the racetrack. <laughs> but it was <laughs> stuff like that, that, you know, this is a down home grassroots sort of racetrack. And I'm not sure what the, they charged him with, but it was uh, something that they, they obviously was not what they liked. And so they figured out he was actually driving the race car. And so, uh, yeah, so there's all kinds of funny stories like that that surround not only Wilkesboro, but I'm sure there's some funny stories that, that went on at other racetracks. Oh, if those ghosts could talk at that racetrack, there's no question. And, and they're definitely for that, that unfortunate driver, whoever he was, man, that, you know, getting black flag now and serving a, a pass through penalty. That's uh, that's not nearly as bad as getting black flagged and pulling in and getting arrested. Yeah, <laughs> Let's true. hope that doesn't happen that's again. <laughs> this is keep in mind for the new fan. These are some of the the early days of NASCAR. Let's put it that way. When we were still a fledgling sport, and and some of the guys not nearly as professional as today. But the great the racing was great. I got to say that. But absolutely. Uh, yeah, but it was just a, a fun era where, you know, there was a lot of funny stories and things like that 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 
I still love to tell, especially the one about Richard Petty and the and the three guys that were putting the buddy through the fence. And they didn't. I don't think. Let's be fair. I don't think they were trying to hurt him. They were just trying to scare him a little bit. I'm sure the they police, did a really good job. <laughs> yeah, until the sheriff's yeah, until the sheriff's department got there and, and told them they need to either sit down or leave the track. So, you know, things like that happen. And you compare that now. So when I was a kid. I'd go, you know, at Charlotte, it, you could go walk right down to the, the fence. And, I mean, you could stand there and watch the race if you wanted. But we would go, and my dad would take pictures of the cars I wanted him to take pictures of, and I'm sure others as well. And we did that from 92 through 97. So we went down to the fence, and um, when Tony Stewart was uh, driving for Team Menard in IndyCar, he did a, an exhibition before the Winston in 97, kind of promoting the inaugural Visionaire 500 they were going to run. I think it was a, a couple of weeks or maybe a month later at Charlotte. And so they had Stuart drive his IndyCar around the track. And that was such a thrill for me. So I'm like telling my dad, you know, we got to go get pictures of this. We got to get right up against the fence and see this. This is, this is so cool that an IndyCar is racing at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And then an IndyCar is even racing in the Southeast at all. It's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. But then, so I didn't know throughout college that you couldn't do this anymore. So I went with uh, one of my fraternity brothers, one of my best friends to uh, a, a then nationwide series race uh, 2010, 2011, and uh, wanted to go down to the fence and take pictures of the cars, you know, as they're, as they're on the grid, they're not, they're not, they're not even on the pace lap. So I start to walk down there and security person's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm going to take a couple pictures. And they're like, you can't do that. I was like, well, why not? <laughs> They're like, <laughs> that's not allowed anymore. It hasn't been allowed for, you know, for years now. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I really didn't know. I wasn't trying to cause trouble or anything. And, you know, the lady kind of laughed and I was like, I, I really didn't know you couldn't do that anymore. So compare that with, you know, <laughs> we joke about NASCAR drivers and access being a little bit more difficult now than it was in the past. But compare that with, you know, being allowed to stick your head through the fence during a race, you know, and, and it, what was it like? Four or five years ago, there was the guy at Richmond that climbed the fence during the race, you know? Yeah, Maybe we yeah. still do have that short track influence, and, and that's it, probably not the influence you want, but my gosh. Uh, of course, and let's not forget 1992, 91 or 92, when the the uh, gentleman who decided he was going to bet his friend at Pocono that he could cross the racetrack during the race and had the leaders, Kyle Petty and Davey Allison, coming at him and and he did make it across the fence i feel confident though that he spent a little bit of time in lockup maybe, maybe in lockup maybe in the pocono uh, county jail up there but uh yeah and i remember kyle and davy saying what the heck i mean here's a guy am i really seeing what i'm seeing and they were yeah. and the guy just said hey i'll bet you 50 bucks i can cross the track before the cars come well that didn't work out Fortunately, worked out better than it could have. Let's put it that way. But it didn't work out very well for him. I think he did spend a few, uh, many, maybe many months in <laughs> in jail. I'm not I, sure. I think uh, I think if if he was going to do that, he probably should ask for a lot more than fifty bucks because I highly doubt fifty dollars yes. paid his bail. <laughs> I don't think it did either. And I I would think, nah, you're a little bit crazy, and uh, I don't believe we need to be doing this. <laughs> no question. But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there, man. I'm telling you, not not as much today. Believe me, it's it's very uh, very well orchestrated now as far as security and those and it's types safer. Of things. Yeah, it, it is safer. So um, speaking of, of, you know, those those races from the 1990s, you know, you got to talk about one of the guys who 
was a superstar in the 90s. He didn't win a championship in the 90s. He won his only championship in 1989, and he was the driver of the two cars. So this being episode two of A Lifetime in NASCAR, um, may as well talk about some of the notable drivers who, who drove the two car. Rusty Wallace is probably at the top. Bobby Allison, Brad Keselowski. When you think of the number two car, Ben, who do you think of? Well, I, I'll be honest with you, Aaron. The one car that I think about with number two was the first time that Bobby Allison won a race, and uh, he did it in the number two car, but it was a Chevrolet that he built in his basically in his backyard, and it was a little Chevelle that he ran uh, up in the northern races. Back in the 60s, they would have what they called the northern tour, and they'd go, go to Bridgehampton and Islip and various tracks around New York, and that's where he ended up winning some of his very first races and uh in the mid 60s and that's just a number that has always been around uh nascar and you know the the adage is that the lower the number the better luck you have with a with a car number that's what i've always heard so really yeah so anytime that you would have drivers that are looking for say number one number two number three whatever the lower the number the more success you're supposed to have with it now with that said we saw where carl edwards ran the number 99 for several years for for jack roush and won some races with him but that's that's what i've always heard and so the number two is one of those numbers that a lot of drivers have enjoyed driving of course dale earnhardt drove number two and his rookie year in 79 and and then won rookie of the year with it in 79 championship in 1980 with team owner Rod Osterland. So it's been a popular number, but you know, I did a little research and I figured out that uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bill Blair, who was from High Point, North Carolina, who won the very first race, I guess, using the car number two. And it came uh, June 18th, 1950 in Ver- Vernon, New York, which was a short track up there. So that's the first time, the second year that NASCAR was in uh, operation. That's the first time the car number two won a race. How about that? And, you know, there's been so many great drivers who've driven that car number. You know, uh, Rusty Wallace and Bobby Allison are just two. Brad Keselowski is who I think uh, the modern fans think of in the two car for his success. He's certainly the most recent champion in the two car, uh, having won in 2012. Before him, Kurt Busch did a great job of replacing Rusty driving that car. For me, there's another one I think of, uh, and a lot of people don't remember him for this, but Ernie Irvin drove the number two Pontiac in 1989 and 90, I believe, before he uh, went to Morgan McClure. He didn't win any races, but that was really Ernie's first legitimate full-time opportunity in the Cup Series, and what he did in that car was certainly enough to impress Morgan McClure to put him in the number four Kodak car where he didn't even need a full season to win the night race at Bristol in 1990. Then he wins at Daytona 500 the next February and goes on to have a very long and successful career between time spent at Morgan McClure and later at Robert Yates racing. So a lot of great drivers in the two car. Um, The driver of the two car Ben did not win our race of the week. Uh, that was another driver who, as you said, maybe there's something with this deal of the lower the number, the the better the luck. It was the seven car who won our race of the week. Our race of the week for episode two is the 1996 Bud at the Glen at Watkins Glen International, which was my favorite name for a race. My favorite names for races in the 90s are the Bud at the Glen and the Winston. Those are just fantastic names. So this 96 race, Jeff Bodine wins it. It's his last victory. Do you remember anything about, about that race, Ben, or about well, Jeff in particular? 
Well, yeah, I do. And and the fact is that, you know, Jeff, uh, to give a little background to serve our new fans, he was an outstanding modified driver up north in the, in the New York state area. And he came down to, uh, you know, to try to his hand at NASCAR racing in the early eighties. And then when he, uh, it actually came down to between Jeff Bodine and Tim Richmond in 1984, to drive for Hendrick Motorsports, the number five car, the very first car for Hendrick. And they weren't having a lot of luck putting something. Tim was supposed to call Mr. Hendrick back. And one thing led to another. And and, uh, Jeff actually was at the dealership in the lobby talking about driving the car and Rick would come out and say, well, I'm still looking at Tim and not sure what we're going to do. And we're still talking. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just sit here in the lobby until you decide what you want to do. <laughs> That's a power and, move. Yeah. And he just sat there and he said, and Rick, Mr. Hendricks said, what? You know, he sat there for like all day and showing me his determination to drive for me. So that's exactly how that came together. And, and for whatever reason, Tim declined the ride at the end of the day. And, and Rick walks back out and says, well, guess what, Jeff, it looks like you're going to be in the, in the number five car for my very first venue, uh, you know, driving in the cup series. And that's, that's how that all came together. And he was just very determined about what he did on the racetrack. He was very determined about his racing, a credible driver. And he was a very, very, very good road course driver. And so, yeah, he, he, and, and ironically he wins, uh, that race in an area where he had won many races on, on the ovals because he's kind of from that area, the Watkins Glen, New York area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a fitting win. And of course it was a very popular win because he was a hometown boy and ends up winning the big race at Watkins Glen and just, and also a, an incredibly nice person. Every time I talk with him, he's just as laid back as he can be and, and had a great career. He won 18 races in the cup series and just a super individual. I really think a lot of Jeff. I, I think Jeff is a, a phenomenal race car driver. And, and unfortunately he kind of gets lost in the discussion of the great drivers of the eighties and nineties. Cause he had a lot of success. He did end up being Tim Richmond's teammate for a couple of years at Hendrick because Rick wound up hiring Tim to drive the 25 car. But Jeff Bodine was a very good driver. I remember vividly watching this race. I was eight years old watching it in my room on ESPN Speed World, and it was such a popular win to see Jeff Bodine win. His his fellow competitors were happy for him. This was really the beginning of the, if you win a road race in NASCAR, you go through Jeff Gordon era. You had Jeff Gordon and Mark Martin were kind of the foremost road racers at the time, and this still being you know very common for, uh, for, for road course ringers. And, you know, and you had, you had him even in this race in 1996, Butch Leitzinger, uh, finished 20th of Winston West fame. So, you know, the, the field wasn't t- quite as competitive as, as it is now where everybody's good at road races, but Jeff Gordon and Mark Martin were no slouch. Jeff Bodine proven once again, he was excellent. It was a very popular win. It's also notable because this came not long after Dale Earnhardt. And so Dale Earnhardt goes in 1996 fighting for his eighth cup championship. Unfortunately, he would never get it, but he was a real contender in the 96 season, along with eventual champion Terry Labonte and Jeff Gordon. Then they go to Talladega in July. Dale has this horrible crash. And, you know, honestly, if you watch it on YouTube, you can look it up. I think it was the 96 diehard 500. 
it's a wonder he survived it, given you know how how it happened and how in some ways it was eerily similar to the cl- the crash that claimed his life four and a half years later. But Dale gets out of the car. He's got a broken sternum. They you know they were going to cut him out, and in the true John Wayne fashion that he was, he gets out. And so it's like, all right, well, Cross Earnhardt off the list of championship contenders now. He's going to be out for a while. No, he continues to race. And so they go to Watkins Glen, a track that everybody in in NASCAR will say is a real test on drivers, not only in terms of of, of shifting gears, of of hitting your marks, you know, because at this time there are only two road races, unlike I think there's seven now. Mm-hmm. But it was a real test of your ability, but it was also a physical test. It takes a physical toll to drive around this racetrack all afternoon. And Dale Earnhardt had to do that or chose to do that. So you go to Watkins Glen for this race in the butt of the Glen, and people are thinking Mark Martin, Jeff Gordon, you know, they're the front runners. Dale Earnhardt with a broken sternum, having trouble breathing, let alone driving or getting strapped into his race car. I mean, it's just got to be so unpleasant to do this. You think, all right, well, Dale's going to, you know, probably qualify in the back and they'll, they'll let somebody sub for him. He goes out and wins the pole and sets a track record. It was an incredible moment of, of strength from Dale Earnhardt. And while he never won a race at Watkins Glen, that performance in qualifying was one of the most incredible things I think a NASCAR driver has ever done. It's another of the reasons that I think this, this deserves to be the race of the week, not just for Jeff Bodine's fantastic performance as the race winner, but also for Dale Earnhardt's simple refusal to be taken down by, you know, by injuries that, you know, the guy could have laid up in bed all week and nobody would have blamed him. I mean, it's amazing. He goes out there and he wins the pole for this race. And I've heard stories that, so uh, I think Don Hawk, who was uh, Earnhardt's manager at the time and later the the GM of Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, uh, Hawk, I think, is the one who told me that, um, so Dale goes out and he wins the poll and they printed up, you know, a few shirts that said hurts so good and had Earnhardt's mm-hmm. car on it. And they were so popular. They sold out in like an hour or two at the track. <laughs> so they had to have people in North Carolina print more shirts and ship them up overnight so they could get them to Watkins Glen in time for the race so they could sell out those. So right. this was not just a popular this, – this is a rare circumstance in NASCAR because not only was it a very popular, memorable win – it was a very popular, memorable qualifying session. Sure it was. And you know what? There's a backstory to that a little bit. And the fact that if you look back to the race prior to that, it was the Brickyard 400. That was going to be the next race after the crash that uh, Earnhardt suffered at Talladega. And if you think back, Mike Skinner got in the three car that day. And it was one of the hardest days in the world for Dale Earnhardt to get out of the car. He was very emotional when, when Jerry Punch spoke to him, I think for ESPN. And he mm-hmm. just, he did not want to get out of that race car, but they had already set the plan. So I think when he got to Wilkesboro, he was like, okay, that's the first time I've had to get out of a car in a long time, maybe dating back to Pocono in 1982 yep. when he crashed with Tim Richmond and broke his knee or kneecap and that put him out for a while. So that was the first time he was out of the, the three car ever. And so it, it's kind of worked on his psyche a little bit. It's like, I've got to get back and show people that I'm good uh, to, to get the job done. And that's how that 
I know that had to be a motivating factor for winning the poll. And then if you think about Jeff Bodine driving the seven car, as we opened the broadcast here, talking about uh, team owner, driver owners, well, that was his car that he that he won the race in. It happened to be the last win of his career. So That's a great point. Yeah, so it was just one of those, what a what a great way for, if you're going to go out and you're never going to win again, what a great way to do it if you're going to win in your own race car at your home track at Watkins Glen, a road course that you're so good at. So had a great a great Cinderella feel uh, for that weekend. I remember that. And it's so nice when you have those types of feel-good stories when you're a writer that you can you can share all that emotion in your words. And you know, it's not just like, well, this guy started from the pole and he led every lap and he won the race. Okay. Not a lot of drama there. But if you got Earnhardt winning the pole. And you've got Jeff Bodine winning his final race, which ended up being his final race in the seven car. It was a great day and and a memorable afternoon of, I remember writing it and thinking, this is cool. Uh, This has (laughs) been fun to write this. I feel like you probably had a ton of material. So how did you, how did you file your stories then? Did you guys have, like, what was the way that you did it at the racetrack in the media center? Uh, I got to think back on that in 96. I remember earlier than that, 91, 90, 91, 92, we used uh, a, what was called a TRS-80 uh, laptop, and it had this really small window, and it was flat. It didn't have a fold-up or a laptop screen like we do today. It was just a window, and I remember you had to hook it to a telephone line. It made all these crackly weird sounds when you sent. But the one thing you're talking about Ernie Irvin, when I was working for NASCAR scene and illustrated, I remember I wrote a really long piece on Ernie Irvin, his career, where he was going all these things using one of those computers. And what you normally had to do is you you've written your story and you, the next thing you do is you just bow your head and you pray. Because when you hit, because <laughs> when you hit that button, one of two things was going to happen: either it was going to send through all those crickly phone lines, uh, you know, sounds, and the editor gets it, or you weren't going to get anything, and it was going to wipe out your story. And so, ironically, I wrote that story three different times uh, oh, because no. I kept losing it. And the third, I, I actually had the presence of mind after losing it the second time, prior to sending it. I printed it out. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, it, like, okay, let's let's use your noodle here a little bit. But yeah, it was really tough. I was trying to think. We were sort of moving into the laptop era then, but they weren't nearly as good as what we have today. They were. There was a lot of quirks to them, and you know, we were sort of in that laptop. Actually, to be honest with you, in the offices we had the big bulky, you know, computers back in those days. Right. You did have you did have the laptops, but nothing nothing is great as what we have today. We're a little bit spoiled with how great these laptops are today. So- so I'm looking at the TRS-80 right now. Uh, apparently, yeah. it was $600 when it came out. And uh, so yeah. the screen, for people who have never seen a TRS-80, and if you don't feel like Googling it, it looks kind of like if you you had a toaster and you put a little screen on it, yeah. um, it, it is very unlike anything I've ever seen. It's almost like a little TV with yeah. a little keyboard on it. And, oh, my gosh, following the story, that was, that uh, that had to be something. Yes, there were there were miracles that happened, and that was when you the guy that you're sending it to back at the office actually got it. But yeah, and we and sadly I'll say this, and I guess it was just a 
a thing we used to call we used to call them trash 80s because <laughs> they were so hard to rent, to use and and if and take it a step further real quick here and they they had these in that window you're talking about which measured i don't know three inches by 10 inches or something like that and you yeah. had to look straight down at it the lettering in there was like if you took a pen and made a mark and made a mark and made a mark and then you went down and down and down it was not like today's very easily read articles or lettering they they were like little stick men type lettering so it was oh my gosh it was it was prehistoric it came over on the mayflower pretty much <laughs> so i had a co-worker years ago who, who was a sports writer for the uh the new orleans thomas picayune and he told me a story about how you know we were i was pretty pretty early into my professional journalism career and he told me a story about how he had covered a high school basketball game in new orleans and uh his name is cliff mertens was a reporter and Cliff told me that, uh, you know, he was using these kind of computers, I'm pretty sure. And so, um, you know, the the line about not being able to see what you were typing is very valid because apparently he wrote that somebody made a big shot in the fourth quarter and he just missed on the O. Um, and so that story had a very unfortunate typo. But uh, as we're discussing, you know, these these computers and how technology has changed, one driver in particular, there have been, there were a few, but one driver in particular, you know, when you started out covering races, he was in the cup series. When you went through the TRS 80 era, he was in the cup series. When I graduated college and was using a laptop, he was still in the cup series. And that's our driver of the week, Mark Martin, who an absolute legend in, in the sport, many say he's the best driver ever to not have won a cup series championship. I don't even think of Martin and think of not winning a championship. I just think of Mark as being such a remarkable race car driver. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts of Mark Martin and the long career he had been? Well, the one thing that comes to mind about Mark was that when he went, to, well, let me back up slightly. He, he learned how to race basically sitting on a very thick phone book because he was a little bit short. He was 14, 15. I remember reading uh, motorsports publications in the mid seventies and there's this little kid named Mark Martin and he was from Arkansas and he was just setting the world on fire out there. But when you looked at his picture, he looked like basically like he was 12 or 13 years old and he wasn't far from that. I think he was, he told me once that the way he could see out the windshield on some of those late model cars was that his dad got they owned a trucking company and they went in the office and got some some phone books and he sat on the phone books to to see how to get out to see out the windshield that's, that's a crazy true story yeah and so as he grew of course he uh it, it continued to run the the short tracks around arkansas he did try his hand at running the cup series in his own car and it just didn't go well again team owner uh trying to make it big a lot of money being spent, not yep. a lot of success. And so he sort of sits out of the Cup Series for a few years, uh, not by choice. And then Jack Roush, who had built his name in various other sports car type venues, comes into NASCAR in the Cup Series and says, I'm looking for a driver. So Mark goes to him, or maybe Jack called him, not sure how that developed. But he basically said to Jack, I don't care what you pay me. I don't want to talk about the money. I want to talk about the car and what's going to make it go fast. And we'll talk about the money later. And that's what impressed Jack to put him in the car because it wasn't about how much money are you going to pay me? I want to race my heart's in racing. And if you knew Mark Martin, I'm the man, if he was going to eat a cheeseburger, 
it was going to be calculated as to which bite was where. I mean, that's the way he operated in his racing, in his life, and to the point where late in his career, he finally said, you know what, I'm worn out from just trying to be the best. And he was so dedicated to everything, every breath he took, it was about being the best. It was about working out. It was about making the car run great, whatever I can do. But I, but I was impressed with that uh, when he went to work for Jack in 1988. Mm-hmm. He didn't really, they weren't really talking money or contract. It's like, let's get together and figure out what we can do to be successful. The first few races of 88, they didn't do all that well. Actually, the first half of 88, they struggled. But by October 19th, 20th or something like that of uh, 89, I remember that because October 21st of 89 was our wedding anniversary and we were I didn't cover the Rockingham race because I was on my honeymoon, but I read in the paper that Mark Martin had won his first cup race and went on to win 39 more races. So to that point, you were his bad luck charm. No, I guess so. I, you know, I should have been there you know, earlier and all that. Yeah. But it was just one of those things that he was so, so, so dedicated to winning because he didn't have the success early on. He didn't want to be a second time failure. So he really wanted to give everything he had to it. And that's what I admired about Mark. And and he drove for many great teams such as, you know, uh, Jack Roush went on to drive for DEI and Michael mm-hmm. Waltrip and ended his career in 2013 with Tony Stewart and Stuart Haas. And, and, and drove for Hendrick as well. Yeah, drove for Hendrick as well. And But you knew if you were a team owner and you get Mark Martin, it's like, okay, this guy is going to give me, if he's running 35th, he's going to run as best he can at 35th, every lap, given everything he has to it. And he told me once, he said, I just wore myself out. I couldn't really enjoy my career because I was so adamant about winning, maybe I didn't enjoy it like I should have. You know, uh, for me, I, I spent a long time watching Mark race on TV. Uh, I saw Mark race in person a bunch of times. I covered some of Mark's races as well. Uh, it's always a, a blast to talk to Mark. I, I chatted with him a couple months ago for a story for NASCAR Pole Position magazine about mm-hmm. fire safety. But the thing with, with me about Mark, I think one of the biggest legacies Mark carries in NASCAR, aside from his longevity and from his numerous wins, from his skill on the road courses like at Watkins Glen where he won three times, one of the biggest things is Mark's analytical mind and his approach to racing, I think, really ushered in that new era of engineering because suddenly teams really had to focus on what they were doing to their cars and how they were doing it to their cars and their engines and their aerodynamics packages because they're seeing Jack Roush and Mark Martin this engineer turned team owner and this driver slash engineer have so much success in the early to mid nineties that everybody's like, all right, we've got to do that too then. And so he mm-hmm. probably, ushered, he probably helped usher that in just as much as Jeff Gordon or anybody else did. But another thing about Mark, um, you know, su- such an, such an awesome guy uh, truly is, is, uh, is a pleasure to talk to every time. And he, uh, he, He's definitely, um, to me, I think he's he's one of the, the people who uh, 100% deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, even sooner than he was in it. I think it just came down to the, the numbers thing. But, you know, for, for me, I think Mark is is, uh, is, is well-deserving of everything that he earned in NASCAR, and I would have loved to have seen him grab a championship. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think he, he came really close to winning a championship several times. I think like six times he finished second. Yeah. 
and and it's it comes so so close. And of course, I think his best shot at winning a championship came in 1990, uh, and Dale Earnhardt ended up winning it. But you know, if you if you think back, it was the I'll give you a little background here: the coldest race in NASCAR history. It was February of 1990 at Richmond mm-hmm. International Raceway at the time, as was what it was called, and the high that day was five degrees. And I wow. remember being there, and I it was one of those days where you're. You had to go out and watch a few laps and come back in because you hurt, physically hurt from breathing. It was so, so cold. And, of course, the best seat in the house was in the 40 cars on the field because they had engines and they were one of the warmest people there. But I'm telling you, man, it was the coldest day. Well, that day they had a, a, a an engine spacer that was deemed illegal. He won the race, yep. but they yep. took points away. And those points ultimately, I think it was 26 points is what he lost to Dale Earnhardt, if I'm not incorrect there. But that particular race, had that not happened, he most likely would have won the 90 championship. So, yeah. And another thing real quick about him, Aaron, is that, you know, every time I think Mark Martin, I think humble because he was even today, you could call him on the phone and say, can you tell me about your success? He said, I I would not believe it. And I couldn't have done it without all these people. And you don't need to praise me for it. It's all about everybody else. He never had a big head about anything he did. It was always about someone else or he was even today incredibly humble about any of his success. And I admire that about him. Absolutely. And in postscript about Mark, he also has an incredible memory. A few years ago, I was, well, well, I think it was about four years ago now, I was doing a story on Mark for the Charlotte Motor Speedway Souvenir Race Program. And so I was talking to him about his success at Charlotte, which he had so much success at Charlotte Motor Speedway um, among several racetracks. You could argue that was his best track. You could argue the Glen was his best track. He really didn't have a weakness as a driver. But he also has such a great memory that he told me his entire spring setup on his car for 1996. So I was asking him about this race specifically, and he's just going into what the setup was. You know, I was like, so what was your key to victory? He just tells me literally what the setup was as if he was reciting it. So, you know, the guy has an incredible memory too, and uh, truly an absolute pleasure to uh, to talk to. And, and for younger fans who don't know a lot about Mark, he's definitely someone worth researching because he's definitely helped get the sport to where it is today. And uh, speaking of where we are today, unfortunately, The checkered flag is out on episode two of A Lifetime in NASCAR. Ben, this has been an absolutely uh, fantastic episode for me learning, just listening to you. We could talk and do this for six hours. I think I could just kind of sit back and the only thing that I would change is I'd grab a bucket of popcorn beside me. (laughs) Well, I think that's what makes this broadcast A Lifetime in NASCAR so much fun because when we talk about things, that thought, leads to another thought and another thought. And yeah, you're right. I think we could sit here for at least six more hours and just talk about what's happened in NASCAR and in the past and maybe where we're going and what, how, what a great sport we have. You know, we, we, it is a truly a great sport seeing cars race around racetracks and I just love it. And I know you do too. And I, I just, it's an honor to, to do this with you and have some fun. And, but you're right. We have to put a checkered flag out at some point, and <laughs> change yep. the tires and fill up with gas and get back out for next week. So I, I'm, it, we're, I'm glad the folks that are listening, enjoy this and uh, hope we can continue doing it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, once again, is we'll, we'll get ready for uh, for episode three of A Lifetime in NASCAR, where we'll continue to discuss where the sport's been, 
all the major players through its history since the 1940s, as well as where it is now in 2020, where it's going to go in the years in the future, and an inside scoop on some some more pretty exciting stories and some incredible moments that Ben and I have witnessed or we've heard stories from those who experienced it firsthand. So until then, thank you so much. We'll get ready for episode three, and we'll be back with episode three faster than Dale Earnhardt can get around Watkins Glen with a broken sternum, which was pretty darn fast. So until then, so long for now. Thanks. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.